Well, good morning, church. We're continuing this series on the Reformation. Today we're going to talk about religious liberty. I want to ask you a question. How many of you own at least one Bible? Raise your hand. In fact, if you have your Bible, hold it up. You own at least one Bible. How would you like to live in a country where it would be illegal to have a Bible? Since you have yours, go ahead and be opening it to Matthew chapter 22. Let me ask you another question. How many of you have ever invited someone to church? Raise your hand. You ever invited someone to church? How would you like to live in a country where that could cause you to be thrown into prison or, in worst cases, uh, lose your life? When we talk about religious liberty, those are just some of the issues we're discussing. In the Sudan, for instance, which is a Muslim nation, the president has made it clear his goal is to have it 100% Muslim. And in fact, he's instructed all Christians to leave. Missionaries have been kicked out. And this year, they passed a law making it illegal for anyone to convert from Islam to Christianity or any other religion. They've seized and demolished churches all over the country. Bibles and Christian books have been confiscated and Bibles are not allowed in the country. In Nepal, which is 80% Hindu, there's a Christian minority that in recent years has really been growing. And in response to that, this Hindu nation passed a law making it again illegal to convert to another religion, making it illegal for you to talk to someone in an effort to persuade them to your faith. And it's a direct attack on the growth of Christianity. And there are a lot of nations where these kind of laws exist. Most of India, for instance, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, on and on I could go listing countries where there are restrictions and persecution and, and criminalization. If you become a, a Christian, if you try to talk to anyone about Christ. In Egypt not long ago, <clears throat> there was a man who's, who's a plumber. He's also a Christian. He's part of a minority Christian group in this part of Egypt. And he was gunned down by Islamic extremists in his home, inside his house, in front of his wife, in front of his children, simply for being a Christian as their stated goal is to eradicate that part of Egypt of all who follow Christ. And you and I need to be praying for brothers and sisters who live in places like that. Today... When we talk about religious liberty, <clears throat> you need to understand that it doesn't exist in much of the world. And even places that in their constitution say they have it, quite often there are very severe limitations on it. It's not a new development. We sometimes think it's new and it's limited to maybe the Muslim world, and that's false. It's been around since man's been around. And unfortunately, Christians at times have been guilty of some of those extremes and making it difficult for people to have faith that's different than ours. In America, quite often, many of us take it for granted. Some of us actually abuse it. I think a majority of Americans don't fully understand it, and we're struggling today to understand how to apply it in some new situations. For instance... The whole gay marriage debate, should a devout Christian who believes in the biblical teaching about marriage be forced to work at a gay 
wedding, whether they're a photographer, a baker, a florist, or any other number of, of professions where you're having to violate your country, should you be forced? That's a debate in our country. And there are divided opinions on it. Religious liberty was an issue during the Reformation. It, it was an issue before then, but it was definitely an issue then. And it's still an issue in our world in, in some ways in our country today. So I want, I want to ask you another question. How much, how much do you really know about the history of religious liberty? How much do you really know about what the world has historically been like and how we got to where we are today? How much do you really know about that? I'm, I'm contending that the average American knows very little about it. And therefore, fails to not only appreciate it, but really understand how it works and therefore struggles to know how to apply it in today's culture. And I'd ask not just the older ones, but the teenagers and the young adults, how well do you understand this subject, this issue? What does the, what does the Bible teach about the relationship, the proper relationship between government and religion? In Matthew 22, Jesus addressed this issue in part. Um, a group came to him trying to create controversy. Sounds like today's culture, doesn't it? See, that, that's how humanity's always been. Remember last week I talked about, you know, corruption and, and all of that. It's not an institutional problem. It's not a race problem. It's not limited to a particular group. It's a, a human problem. This, this issue of wanting to discredit people by creating controversy is a human problem that's always been around. The struggle for religious liberty is a human problem. It's not limited to, to just religion. It's freedom. Freedom is bigger than religion, but it's a human problem that has, that has existed throughout history. And in Matthew 22, if you'd look with me beginning at verse 15, the Bible says the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him, Jesus, in what he said. In other words, how can we get him to, you know, say something that will make him unpopular? I mean, it, it seems like every week you read in the news someone said something. And, and, and there's major controversy because of it, right? So they're trying to discredit Jesus by getting him to say something. Verse 16, the Pharisees sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Now what's interesting is you have the religious, a religious group in Israel and a political group, the Herodians, a political group working together to discredit Jesus. You need to hear that. And they, they try to flatter him by saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth. You don't lie. You defer to no one. You're not trying to, you know, uh, play favorites. For you are not partial to any. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? Is it lawful to pay tax to this Roman government that is oppressing us, that has conquered us? And if Jesus said, hey, no, don't pay it, then he would make the Romans and those who supported Rome mad. And if he said, uh, yes, pay it, then he would make those who were against Roman. He, it was a no-win question. 
He was going to alienate somebody no matter how he answered. Verse 18, remember Jesus is divine, he's God. And so he perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used to pay the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius, a coin like our quarter or whatever. And he said to them, whose likeness, whose image and inscription is on it? All right, here's an American quarter. All right, history lesson. What president is on the American quarter? Come on, come on. All right, yeah, yeah, our first president, you got it. So they had... Inscriptions, pictures, likenesses, images on their coin, just like we do. And they said to him, it's Caesar, it's the emperor. Every time they got a new emperor, they issued new coinage with his image on it. And um, then he said to them in verse 21, um, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, Jesus is acknowledging there you, in one sense, have two kingdoms. You have an earthly kingdom, a temporary kingdom, Caesar's government. You have an eternal kingdom. It's a heavenly kingdom, but it also has existence on earth. It's God's kingdom. And you you render to each what is due each. Now, here's when problems, here's when problems come. It's when Caesar and God, when government and religion get a little too cozy, problems come. When Caesar and God, when government and religion, when one, when one of them, either one of them, tries to dominate the other or use the other to their ends, usually problems come. Why? Because humans... <laughs> who are sinful and prone to corruption, as we talked about last Sunday, are in both. And what's that old saying, power corrupts and absolute power does what? Okay. doesn't matter whether it's religion or government or education or any field of life. During the, the years of the Reformation in the 14 and 1500s, you know, Martin Luther, who's credited with initiating the movement we call the Reformation in Germany, was excommunicated by the Pope, by the church. But do you know who, who tried to arrest him and who was going to execute him? It wasn't the Pope. It wasn't the church. It was the, the emperor, Charles, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire and princes in parts of Germany and other places because they were in bed together. And I don't have time to go through the history of how the church was able to exert that much power over the government, but it did. It was the most powerful institution in Europe at that moment in time. A century or so before Martin Luther, John Huss, taught many of the same things that Luther taught, and he was also excommunicated by the church, declared a heretic, and the the Holy Roman Empire emperor had John Huss burned alive at the stake. So religious liberty was an issue then, just as it is in much of the world today. This seems strange to us, doesn't it? I mean, let's just be honest. Having lived in America 
seems strange to us that a government would brutally enforce something like that. But isn't that what happens in much of the world even today? Not just in Islamic nations, but in Hindu nations and others. It's amazing how unaware we are because the American press so, says so little about it, but, but the best research says more Christians are dying through persecution today than any time in human history. We don't know anything about it, do we? When Monisa and I were vacationing in Italy three years ago or so, one of the most moving experiences for me was visiting what's not one of the top tourist attractions in Rome. It wasn't the Colosseum. It wasn't the Vatican or the St. Peter's Basilica. One of the most moving, moving moments for me was when I stood on the ground at Circus Maximus. If you've seen either of the Ben-Hur movies, the one from years ago or the more recent one, in those chariot races, that's Circus Maximus. And when you visit it today, you can still see the outline of the track, the elevated area in the middle where the stand. They're starting to excavate it now. And I, I can remember standing there on that ground knowing that in Rome, that was the location where the first Christians executed in the city of Rome died for their faith. It wasn't in the Colosseum. It was at Circus Maximus. And so the lack of freedom, not just religious freedom, but political freedom, the freedom to live has been a human problem forever. It's not new. Things started changing for Christians when Constantine became emperor in the early 300s said he became a Christian, was baptized. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. I don't know. But he's the one that gave Christianity favored status in the Roman Empire, and it moved from being a, a religion that was persecuted to the, the favored religion. As I said last week, then it became the, the thing to join, and so it corrupted the church over the centuries. But one thing we know for a fact the Roman Empire had been sort of disintegrating, coming apart, if you will, for years, and they had been trying to, to, to put it back together and make it cohesive like the, the glory years of Rome. And, and they had moved to where they had allowed more people to become citizens, and so they, they loved the number one, their one citizenship, one, one emperor. You see where this is going? One, one law for the entire empire, one, one emperor, one, one law, one citizenship, and therefore we need one religion to hold it all together. And if we're going to have one religion, there can't be any divisions within that religion. And so the marriage between the church and the, the Roman Empire in the 300s ended up corrupting the church. Because it had grown rapidly in the first two centuries during persecution. And think about this. 
It had grown in 200 years to the point that the Roman Empire said Christianity is the religion that could help us hold the entire empire together. That in and of itself speaks to the miraculous growth of God's church during those 200 years of persecution. And so suddenly you had this marriage between the church and the empire of the church and government and the sword the government used to enforce this one religion with no divisions in it. And for the next 1,200 years, that's how Europe functioned. That's in essence how the Catholic Church became the most powerful entity in Europe in the Middle Ages. And so now you get to the 1500s in the Reformation. I'm, I told you I'm going to try not to give you too much history, but today I have to give you some history because the truth is you cannot understand and appreciate religious liberty without knowing some history. You just can't. And so Martin Luther in Germany and Zwingli and in uh, Switzerland, in Zurich, and later, a little later, 30 years later or so, John Calvin in Geneva and others all worked to reform the church and bring about what we today know as Protestantism, freeing the gospel to be proclaimed that it's through what we say, faith alone, grace alone. You, you remember that? huh? Grace alone through faith alone and Jesus alone. But all of us are citizens of the culture in which we live and struggle sometimes to rise above it and see truth. That's true today. That's true today. Every generation is in some way a prisoner to its own day. And so Luther and Zwingli and Calvin, great men of God, reformers that we need to honor also were fallible. And, 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 and they were still part of that mindset that it existed for over a thousand years that for a community to be cohesive and for a community to exist in peace, that community must have one religion, one faith. And so all of them used the government to enforce their reformed understanding of what the church should look like in that city or that region or that country. They didn't understand religious liberty the way we do today. In Zurich, where Zwingli, another one of the reformers, lived and led, Anabaptists emerged. Those who not only believed that faith was through that salvation was through faith in the grace of God and in, in, in the sacrifice Christ, the crucified Jesus, but also believed that biblically the only person to be baptized was someone who was already a believer. And all of them had been baptized as infants, and when they started, they, they realized that. And the, the first group of them that actually practiced believers' baptism. The reformers that we're talking about agreed with the Catholics that they were heretics because they no longer believed in infant baptism. And the very first ones who were baptized by immersion as believers 
were taken out into the river in January of the winter, their hands tied and thrown off the boat into the river and drowned in mockery of their adult baptism. See, religious liberty has developed in much of the world slowly, gradually, over a long period of time. And people who were good people were still in many ways, just like us, prisoners of their own time. When the Puritans came to America, we talk about the Puritans coming to America on the Mayflower because they wanted to escape religious persecution and be free. And yet when they set up their church in the new world, it was one church, their way, and the government used to enforce their way of doing it. And so it was illegal to celebrate Christmas. You had to support the church through your taxes. If you didn't practice infant baptism, if you argued against it, you were persecuted. The first Baptists in America were beaten and scourged and chased out of town. The point I'm making is religious liberty hasn't always been. Freedom hasn't always been. And even the people that God used throughout time to, to usher it in, it was still a slow process. And just like they were prisoners of their day and didn't fully appreciate it, if you and I are not careful and we ignore the lessons of history, we won't understand it and we will misuse it, we will abuse it and potentially lose it to some extent. Matthew 22, 21, what did Jesus say? He said, whose inscription, whose image is on it? Caesar's. Then he said, render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God, the things that, that are God's. So what, what do we owe the government as believers in Jesus? Hmm? Now, the first one you won't like. I don't like it. Pay your taxes. I don't like that one. Taxes too high. But pay your taxes. Romans 13, 7, pay your taxes. Here's the second thing. Be a good citizen. Obey the laws. Be moral. Be a good person. Make the place you live a better place. There's some verses that talk about that. But we owe, we owe the country, we owe the government some things, but what do we owe God? See, that's the main point Jesus was trying to make in, his, in, in that story. He said, bring me a coin. They did, a denarius. I got a quarter here. Whose who's likeness, whose image is on it? They said Caesar, the emperor. Yeah. Washington, first president. Well, you know, give Caesar, give the government what's due them, but give God what's due him. What's due God? <laughs> whose image, whose likeness is on that coin? Well, Caesar. His image is on the coin. Washington, the government, image on the quarter. But whose image is stamped on you? Genesis chapter 1, God made man, how? After his likeness in his image. 
Jesus says, if you really want to understand how to do all this, yeah, you're a good citizen and you do these things. But in the end, you have to remember that you have the image of God stamped all over you. You are created in his image, meaning that your total being belongs to God. When we talk about stewardship and tithing and giving, and people get all put in a dander about it and so on. Listen, Jesus said, what you do with your money is the least when it comes to faithfulness. Because if you can't get this right, there's all these other things you're probably going to struggle with also. Because God owns not just your money, God owns you. His stamp is on you. His image, His inscription is all over you. And so our whole person, our total being belongs to Him. Now, how, how do we show that? Well, later in this same chapter in Matthew 22, verse 37, Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God. I preached on this several weeks, a year or so ago. Love the Lord your God how? How, church? Oh, read it. Come on. With all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. He said, that's the greatest commandment above every other commandment. You don't love God with part of your life, with some of your stuff, with a little bit, or every now and then, or when it's convenient. You love God with your total being, total being, total being, all the time. That's what, see, we owe God more than we owe America. And I'm going to be honest, sometimes I think we American Christians forget that. And some of us love America more than we love Jesus. We love God with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind. Now, some of you might be thinking, so let me just go ahead and ask it. What does all this have to do with religious liberty, loving God? and you know, what, what does that have to do with religious liberty? Well, it's just this. How are we supposed to love God with everything? Now, listen, here's why religious liberty matters. Here's why freedom matters. Love can't be forced. Can it? You either love or you don't. Love cannot be coerced, cannot be forced. So if there's any entity, any power that forces it, it's not love, it's not genuine, it's not real, therefore it's no good. It has to be free. And... and, and Ultimately, where does freedom come from? Even our forefathers, we are endowed with certain inalienable rights, right? Because God is the one who created us free to believe or not believe. Gives us the freedom to accept Christ or reject Christ. The freedom to worship and how we worship. To live our faith without fear of punishment. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that every choice is right and that no choices are wrong. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that all religions are the same and we all worship the same God. It doesn't mean that. It does, 
it, it doesn't mean that we're no longer accountable to, accountable to God because we are accountable to God. But here's the thing. If I, and this, this is what Scripture teaches and what we believe, that if I'm going to stand before God, the God of the universe on Judgment Day, and be responsible and accountable to Him for my choices, then for it to be real, I must be free to make those choices. Doesn't mean that my choice is necessarily right and that God will be pleased with it. Doesn't mean there's no judgment. But if I'm the one responsible for it, when I meet God, then I must be free to make it. And that's just one of the reasons that freedom and religious liberty have been so precious to Baptists throughout our history. Now, let's get back to America. What about that baker out in Oregon who refused to make a wedding cake for a gay wedding? They had made birthday cakes for them before. Just didn't want to make a wedding cake because it violated their conscience and understanding of biblical marriage. You may or may not know this, but the state fined them $135,000 and basically ended up shutting their business down. See, in the past, now hear me, church. In the past, there have been times when the government has forced non-religious people to support religion. True? Is that true? Let's be honest. Is that true? Yeah, that's true. We're not careful today. The government is forcing religious people to violate their conscience and support secular activities. It's the same principle, just in a different direction. And both are easily abused. Now, here's the question for you and me Will we give God what He is owed, whatever the circumstances? whether we have freedom or don't have freedom. Whether the worst thing that will happen is somebody may just choose to not like us or laugh at us or think we're nuts or we're in one of those places where it could cost you your life or your home or your job or your freedom. Are we willing, whatever, whatever, whatever the circumstance, to give God what God is owed? That's really, see, liberty is irrelevant if you don't make choices. Now we who say we follow Christ, willing to make the choice to follow him uh, no matter what. Recently in a Muslim nation in the Middle East, there were two pastors and some new believers who were arrested during a Bible study. They were discipling those new believers and they were arrested and put in jail and for two days fed just one piece of bread and beaten daily. But on the third day, an official of some prominence came to see them and they were surprised. And when he was alone with them, he asked these two pastors to pray for him. They thought when he showed up it was going to be their last day of life. But instead he asked them to pray for him. The reason was four nights in a row, he had a dream. So two nights before they were arrested, he had a dream. 
And then two nights after, same dream, four nights in a row, same dream. And in his dream, and by the way, there are countless stories in certain parts of the world where God works this way. It was the same dream, and in the dream, he saw Jesus on his throne surrounded by millions of angels. And at one point, Jesus held up his hand and he saw the scars. And so now he's visiting them in, in jail and asking them to pray for him. Long story short, they were eventually released. But when he came to see them, they shared Jesus with them. And he there in the cell quietly accepted Christ. And after they were released, they baptized him. Now, you and I go to a party. And we're so worried about fitting in, we give in. We're at a neighborhood gathering. We're so concerned about being accepted, we compromise. We go to a ball game or some other event in the public and we act like the public rather than the people of God because we want to fit in. And while there are some challenges to liberty in America, for most of us, the worst thing that will happen is somebody will just look at you and think, man, you're strange. What would you do if you lived in a place where holding this would put you in jail? What would you do if you lived in a place where inviting your relatives to church could put you in jail? And we live in a land where the worst that will happen in all likelihood is somebody will just laugh at us. Are you willing to give Jesus what he is due in your life? Are there there moments, have there been moments when you gave in? that you need to repent of and ask forgiveness for. 